I'm Rich Rosenzweig, and this is Big Noise from Planet Earth. I want to start saying there are some undeniable things in life for me, and I'm doing this podcast because maybe you can relate. It's strange times, difficult times, and it helps to cling to these undeniable things, and for me, music is one of the few at the top of the list. It's up there with food, shelter, and a place to walk. Some of us are able to make music, some go to hear live music as often as possible, but at least, thank goodness, we all have some access to listen to it, to talk about it, learn about it, to get us through great and shitty moments. This podcast is about connecting, and it's about improvisation. Connecting in that it's about how drummers and bassists connect, think, and react. Improvisation in that it's rooted in jazz. So to get specific, as I was learning how to finally record myself playing drums, drumming is what I do, I started to amass little snippets of me banging around, a few minutes here and there, trying to get a good sound with my new recording gear, and I thought, maybe I could have fun dropping these snippets in the laps of my bassist friends. And I have lots of bassist friends, here in New York and across the country. There is a reason for the adage about a drummer's best friend being a bassist. If we don't get along, everyone is miserable and the earth falls off its axis. So what if I reached out, caught up with all of them, let them share their stories and how they're faring right now in all this insanity, and also asked them to record over my short clips of drumming, to blow over whatever free or groove playing I casually self-recorded, giving each bassist free reign to do whatever. Compare and contrast the creative mind. And all these people are creative, accomplished musicians. They're all badasses, every last one. So here we are, here you are, and badass number one is Marianne McSweeney. I've known Marianne for about 25 years. She reminded me that we met on a jazz gig at the Harvard Club on a break where apparently we wrestled over the last remains of some shrimp cocktail. We've played together many times since, jazz gigs, clinics, Broadway, off-Broadway. I don't think I know another musician who is as busy, who has the energy she puts out to stay active in jazz, teaching, Broadway, composing, recording, and yet somehow stays grounded, chilled out, and totally without pretension. The interview we had happened in person, so we masked up, sat far apart, and caught up. But before we jump in... Here's an excerpt of a recording of Marianne's. This is part of a passionate project of hers in which she combines Portuguese fado music with jazz. It's from a tune entitled Ispia, or Spy. In addition to Marianne on bass, the tenor saxophonist is Sam Marlieri, and on drums is George Palironacos.
doing? How now? I guess I think it's appropriate to start out with just how this has been for you. Um, you can either start with what you've been up to since this all started, or if you even want to start with what you were doing mm-hmm. when all this came down. Okay, so when before the p- pandemic hit, I uh, was in a show called Girl. F- I was in the show on stage playing bass in a show called Girl from the North Country, and it was a really beautiful show. We had just opened, and we had just done our um, our recording. We spent two days in the studio. People were getting really, really sick, really sick at that time. Oh, really? So there was evidence of that while you're doing the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People were just like two two people on the dressing room floor were sick. Two guys, two actors. We didn't know. All of a sudden, they were just like not coming to work. We're like, wow. How soon before you knew that it was COVID then? Um, Or you knew right away? We didn't really know. We didn't know. There was no information. We had heard, I think... I think March 10th, I heard some usher was sick in one of the theaters, and then we had a meeting about it, but then people were just not feeling well, and, and in fact, um, yeah, just a, a lot of people around me were just not not well, and they weren't well at the, the recording session, but you know how actors and musicians are? We show up if we're half dead, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We just keep going, you Wait, know. So you were in rehearsal when this was happening, or you did you do performances? Yeah, we oh, had just did, right. opened. So uh, it, you know, it's funny. Uh, just the other day, I listened to Alec Baldwin's podcast. He was interviewing Mark Kudish, who's in your oh. uh, in your cast. Yes, Mark. I did. I did a show with him a million years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, he talked about the experience. And of course, Alec Baldwin had to ask him. You know, what, did you meet Dylan and? talk about Dylan and Connor, Connor McPherson, right? Who wrote yeah. it and directed it. Amazing. So since you're on stage, I was wondering if it was appropriate to ask if you were in a pit, but you're not, you're on stage, you're part of the show. So was there contact or at least did you get a sense of how those guys work? Because that's amazing to be a part of the show dramatically as well as musically. Yeah. I mean, we were there with them. They brought us in after they rehearsed for a month and then brought the band in, which was only four of us on stage. And so, um, we had blocking the violinist had to do some choreography. Uh, they kept moving stuff around. They kept taking, uh, you know, there was a lot of moving around and, and memorizing things. And they changed a lot of things. No dialogue, but, you know, just after a certain amount of shows, you just start singing along and (laughs) kind of dance a little bit with the actors. And Mark Kudish would always say some interesting things in my ear at the top of the show. Oh, boy. I'd be afraid to ask. No, Yeah, um, because he's got this whole bass voice, which kind of like is in my frequencies of the bass. And (laughs) I know my MD was looking back like, what's going on back there? So that we open the show, like I come out on stage in the middle of the stage and then we start. That's how it, the show opens. So we were all together all the time, up and down stairs and, you know, dressing rooms. And, you know, we were together. Just wow. like, it was really great. I mean, I have to say, I this group of people, it comes from the top down. I mean, Connor McPherson's super talented and... Um, 
I, I love the orchestration. I mean, everything. You know, I, I miss everybody. It, oh, God. I, I mean, it just was a hard... You get, it was like March 11th. Um, yeah, we're you're done here for now. We'll see you in two weeks. Come get your stuff if you want to. Right. And I just went to the city and, you know, sirens are going off. And I ran in, got my base um, and left everything in my dressing room, including my... Like, I have a bunch of stuff in there right now, yeah. as we speak. Yeah, it's strange. I just left. I what? just, it was, it was, because we didn't know what was going on. We still kind of don't, really. Right, and we were told, because uh, I was doing a show also, we were told, what, about a month or two, and we'd be back? We were, we were told two weeks or so. Oh, oh, right, originally it was something it was like... two weeks, so, <laughs> you know, and you don't know what's going on. I mean, there was so many rumors, it's like only certain people, like... Older people get the COVID, and I was like, something's not right here. Something is so not right. So, and they said, oh, if you need a test, we'll organize that for you, but it'll take some doing, and I don't know. I, I was taking a ton of vitamins at the time because we were all pretty run down anyway, you know, how it is when you are working six days a week and opening a show. Plus, I was teaching at um, a school, so I had classes on other days. What was the vibe there in terms of now you're already heightened in your sense of something crazy's going on. And I was going to mention also how Broadway never shuts down. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, we all know that uh, the show must go on adage is, is real. I mean, it takes a lot to shut that down. So if that's going down and you're teaching and you know, it's all about, uh, you know, how contagious this is, what, what were you juggling with, you know, there at school? Well, the school that I te was teaching at, or I still teach there, but um, on Zoom, uh, they, a mile away, there was a school that got the first case of, of COVID. And mm -hmm. that, that person lived in New Rochelle. So that family right. that was connected. So New Rochelle was the first city they shut down. And our school is like half a mile from them. So our school just shut down. We were out of there. I left everything there too. I have a bunch of stuff there. Yeah. You know, everything was just like, not sure. And I'm kind of glad the school did shut down early. They were one of the first to shut down. And they said, you're going to be teaching remote starting tomorrow. Figure it out. Figure out a lesson plan for the kids. Really? Oh yeah. What age kids are we talking about? Um, Middle school and high school. I have a bunch of bass players there. And, and, you know, they're super great kids and everybody was in shock and we made it work, but it was not easy. I had kids crying on Zoom, you know, this wow. little bass player, such, such a great kid, you know, these kids didn't want to get out of bed, you know, and they, they were depressed and, um, it actually helped me like keep myself, you know, I'm an adult. I got to like show up for right. these kids. So that kept me going for this whole time. And then... And you um, had to be a child therapist at the same time, too. <laughs> well... Or, or, and, and we needed it as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was kind of therapy for me in a way just to have to focus on music, focus on the bass, keep it going, keep passing on the information. These kids are so cute. And we just were trying to keep it, keep it light, you know, thinking about like, well, what are... What are some good things about staying at home? You know, trying to keep it positive. Because, right. <laughs> you know, it was well, not easy. And, and tell me a little bit about, 
because any musician who's listening to this, there's a percentage of them that are teaching as well. And we're all hearing about trying to navigate the world of teaching on Zoom, which is hugely challenging in general. And then it depends on the instrument you're playing and, and each instrument has its own challenges. So for you, you've got these kids, let's say for private lessons, they have their bass. And, and by the way, uh, since it's a new thing, are parents like hanging out at the Zoom meeting and, and are they trying to help guide or do you get real personal one-on-one with these kids when you're teaching? I didn't see too many parents. I mean, I saw them trying to get their kids out of bed and then the <laughs> kid would show up in his, his or her pajamas oh, and start man. crying. And I'm like, all right, time to get your electric or get your bass out. You know, one kid played electric and upright. And we're going to play Hey Jude. We're going to just play some Beatles and mood change. And we just did it, you know. And then I said, now we're going to record. So they actually, all the kids learned to record. And by the end of the semester, every one of them had submitted recordings through different um, platforms. And we put that together for a big concert. Well, big concert meaning a 30-minute concert on Zoom for all the families. Wow. And it was an amazing amount of work. Like it was triple the amount of work as a teacher. I was just, I'm just a real quarter time person there. So the right. full timers were just, there were so many meetings on how to do this and how to do this effectively. And what can we do as musicians and teachers to make this um, really meaningful, you know, and we did it. Like, I was so proud of the kids. I was so proud of the faculty, Um, the violinist, uh, the teacher there. She had a great idea to do Ode to Joy with the entire orchestra. And we had them video themselves, and we did it. We had somebody mix it. Wow. And you'd think, I mean, one of the tough things to, to get through all of this is, I mean, certainly for me, is a sense of how productive can you be? And so I would assume just that for the kids too, I don't know if that's what was going through their heads because being productive when you're a little kid, but, but still to, to be occupied and to have those projects and recording maybe for the first time for them. Is oh, that, for sure. I it, mean, there was a thing to try and get them to, you know, put the mic, meaning the mic, meaning their phone in the right place. Right, right. And also not be backlit with when they were videotaping themselves. I mean, so they all learned a lot of skills. And at the same time, I, I mean, I'll say for myself, I learned a lot of different skills that I never had. And that includes just being a home studio. You know, like I never had a home studio. I always went to studios. Right. I have like friends who are awesome engineers. I just yeah. go there. So that's been a good learning curve and challenging and frustrating all in one. I'm still wondering how all that works. But I mean, I'm, I did a recording for, um, okay. So there's this women in jazz organization. Mm -hmm. Did you see that? Uh, you did tell me a little bit about it, but I also did see it. It was like a huge remotely recorded, like a, almost an orchestra. Did you say 30 pieces? 45. 45. Apparently 45, maybe it was 45 tracks. I don't remember if there was actually 45 people. But it was all women and all conducted by a woman, put together um, the mixes, the everything. 
by women in jazz organization and mostly very young women. Right. You mentioned they were... Now, how, how young are we talking here? What are the youngest... Um, like, uh, I would say 18 and up. Wow. You know, a lot of people in their 20s. And they were great. I mean, I was really proud of them. Everyone really brought it. We did a tune called Alone Together. Right. Sure. <laughs> because of the pandemic. <laughs> but it was just, it was, it was um, interesting. We layered it. You know, right. we layered it like a lot of people are layering stuff. So we started with the bass and mm -hmm. a click track. And there was actually three bass players, and I was just one of them. Wow. So I I was like, um, I did all the reference tracks, meaning I did all three bass tracks, sent that to them, and then they layered their stuff on top. Right. And the drummer even layered her stuff on top of that. So we had a click going the whole time. We can, we can go back a little bit, and I, I wanted to ask a little bit about... Uh your early years, if you don't mind. I don't mind. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I think I will have mentioned a little bit about your growing up and learning piano at age five mm. and yeah, then five. to violin at eight. Mm -hmm. And then tell us about uh, when suddenly the bass came into your life. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... I liked all, I mean, I wasn't really allowed to listen to other kinds of music, you know, because I'm from a very religious family. So there was like the music I heard in church, I actually just played organ in church for a while. Cause I'm like, well, what else am I, I didn't really want to go to church, but I'm like, why don't I just learn how to play the organ and give me something to do. So I, my piano teacher brought me down there and she showed me the organ. I'm like, all right, great. I'll do that. So you know, I wasn't a super big fan of that music, but... Yeah, um but your feet reached the pedals? Yeah, they did. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't great at the pedals, but I, I got enough going to do services, you know? Right. But it, you know, I... Anyway, so what I heard growing up... Wait, what was the question? <laughs> well, I, I was asking about when the bass sort of came into your life, yeah. but, but I actually did uh, want to hear a little bit about you know, your, uh, um, your religious family and how that was sort of a, a little bit of an impediment to you branching out. It sounds a little bit like, uh, what was the, uh, the Kevin Bacon movie? I don't know. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> this is embarrassing. Oh, you know, the one, right. You know, uh, the one where you dance. Right. Yeah. I was going to say Flashdance, was I think everybody... Flashdance. And then, then they made a musical out of it, and Footloose. That's Footloose, yeah. So, yeah, basically I didn't hear any... I know my dad had a couple jazz albums. He listened to Cal Jader, very amazing vibraphonist. Right, right. Because he lived next door to him. So I heard a little bit of jazz once in a while, but mostly classical. And I had been going to all this classical stuff. So when I got into junior high and there was a jazz band, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I went to a two-year junior high, and I was, the, I was a violinist. And my band director said, well, um, Alice is leaving next year. Do you want to play the bass? And I said, well, yeah. So he hands me the Carol Kay books and a record, literally an LP, and says, go home and listen to this and play with this stuff over the summer, and then come back, and you can be in jazz band. I kind of had to hide it, you know, like I came home and, like, I thought this was awesome. I see Carol Kay on the cover and right. this little dress with boots. Wait, I'm going to stop you. So Alice, who was the bass player who left, yeah. 
tell me what the how the school looked at her, a girl, and I can say a girl, not a woman, because we're yeah, we were about, girls. Uh, so yeah. she was already a novelty, I guess, as being the bass player in jazz band or not. Oh then. yeah, there was maybe two or three girls in the band. I, I didn't know, you know, I didn't pay attention to that stuff. But um, she was going on to high school. She was a violinist, so I also thought she was cool. Like, like she, I don't know. It seemed. I wanted to be like her. So I was sure. like, you know, at that age, you're like, Alice is cool. She plays violin and she plays bass. So I brought the bass home and I said it was a hobby, which, you know, I kind of knew right then and there that was not a hobby. This was electric bass. And then two years later or a year later, my, my band director in high school, when I got to high school, he says, hey, do you want to come to this jazz festival in Concord, the famous Concord Jazz Festival? Mm-hmm. And I haven't really been anywhere. I went to church. I really wasn't ever going out to anything except for a classical concert. So I was like, oh, yeah, I want to do this. Right. So we went, and the bass player that I saw was Ray Brown playing in a quartet. <laughs> you start at the top. Why not? And I was like, oh, my God, what is he doing? He's playing and he's laughing and he's yelling at his friends and they're laughing on stage while they're playing. Now I'm from, I was like the first violinist in the orchestra concert master. Right. Right. So everything was very, so very you formal. just, you know, do that. You Are don't... you allowed to have fun on stage? No, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, and this I... guy's having fun. fun. And, and by the way, at that point, had you picked up an upright or was it only electric at that point? It was only electric. Um, and I just thought, this is the coolest thing ever. And we, we even went backstage and I talked to him. I, I didn't know like how famous he was. I just knew that, that this guy was having a blast and even I wanted better, to do that. Yeah. You know, that like, why can't I do that? I don't know what made me think that. I'm a 13 year old girl from a beach town and I'm seeing this stuff and it, it just hit me. So like my band director brought some very famous jazz musicians up from LA mm-hmm. and they came to our school and kind of mentored us a little bit. I mean, there, there was like, I remember the, the weed, the smoking behind the, <laughs> in our, in our cafeteria. Right. Like, I'm like, wow. Okay. Um, but just hearing these guys play the way they played was just fantastic. And they yeah. were all type top, studio musicians or they had been on on the road with ellington or you know this guy cat anderson came to our school He's, oh my he, god yeah and marshall royal and um uh the bass player uh oh my god L- leroy vinegar right oh my god i was like oh i love what he was doing you know so i there was this thing that was happening in this little town that i'm from it's life-changing if you've never seen something like that before. It's, it's, uh, yeah. and, you know, I can imagine seeing, right, if you've only played classical music and, and the anticipation of a concert and it's all so strict and you don't want to make mistakes and here you see one of the greatest bass players of all time up there just having a good time and it's 10 times more fun than you thought it might be. It was shocking. You were I hooked, was like, right? What? You said, you said that, your parents, you told your parents it was a hobby, but you knew from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say stuff like, yeah, I'm bringing this, don't worry about it, but can you come get, get the bass from school so I can bring it home? 
And they were like, well, okay, it's not going to fit in the car. I'm like, yeah, it'll fit in the car. And then we got pulled over. <laughs> and it was hanging out of the car. Because Why? Because it was yeah. a Granada. I don't know if you know it. So there, the neck was hanging out of a God. sedan because there was no way to put it in right. straight. So we got pulled over and the, and the cop said to us, you know, someone just got hit by one of these things. <laughs> what? And my mom's like, oh, my God. We're almost home. Like, we're going to be home in five minutes. I'm from a t tiny town. Someone got hit by one a of these A base, things? which is not, mm. not, no. He, I don't know why he said that, but on there, I, I remember that. Uh, maybe was, there was a, a problem an with incident. that. This is Santa Cruz we're talking about? Yeah, I don't think somebody was hit by the neck of a base on the, on the freeway in Santa Cruz mm -hmm. in 1977. The cop was trying to be creative and think of uh, an excuse. Yeah, to give us a ticket. <laughs> he didn't give us a ticket, but we, we went home. And my thing was, you know, it's a hobby. Don't worry about it. And then the concert started coming. And I'm like, I have a concert with the jazz band. And it didn't go well. I'll tell you that right now. My parents. In, with your family. No, not at all. Yes, and I think I remember good. talking to you before about the irony of parents at that time, probably extremely worried that if kids were going to go into playing heavy metal or something really that would send them down the wrong path, and yet here you are, and without, you know, we don't have to get specific about years, I'll be polite, but <laughs> we're talking about the late 70s, early 80s, something yeah. like that, and you're playing jazz, and you're, you're hearing these great musicians who were famous decades ago, before that. Yeah. And you're playing bass fiddle, and yet that was still kind of threatening it, it, to your folks. So it was a problem. It was pretty strict. It was a problem. It was it was a problem. It I won't say you know, they came around eventually, but it took a long time. I think my dad was into it, but because my mom was like so religious and so into her things she couldn't see outside of that Can you give me an example of like the religion <laughs> well and what what things she was saying to you or did they you know were were they physical with you when no you no oh. no it wasn't like that but it was very like intimidating or? yeah like um oh it's hard to describe i mean i okay so just just so you have an idea we had to be home at six o'clock every day no matter what you're doing even if you had a rehearsal like if you're 15 or 16 or 17 years old and you have a rehearsal and you're rehearsing for a concert I had to be home at 6 or 6 15 a to have dinner with my family now right. I get it to have the family together at a certain time but you got to be flexible there was no flexibility there mm -hmm. and I had no car and I had to deal with a bass and go from a to b to c so I was bombing rides it was just crazy so what, what I'm saying, I think in hindsight, I think mostly there was fear involved on my parents' side that this was going to take me down the wrong path right. because they had assumed, you know, I was actually a concert pianist when I was in high school. So I was heading for that. And they were okay with music as long as it was that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like I had, amazing I had an amazing piano teacher. I just talked to her the other day. She's going to be 80 in January, and I'm wow. hoping we can have some big, huge party. But <laughs> because of the freaking pandemic, yeah. 
So she approved of you switching instruments and going into jazz and yeah, my and, piano teacher. Yeah, she's super supportive. Yeah. I I mean, this is how strict the the family was. I wasn't allowed to take lessons after a certain amount of time with my piano teacher because she was getting divorced, and you don't get divorced when you're in a Catholic right. religion. So I was taken out of those lessons after four years of really intense, great lessons to a teacher who was Catholic, you know what I mean? Who was a friend of my mom's from right. school. So like, so w the way I handled that was, okay, you want to do that? I'll be doing this. So I would open the window late at night, climb out the window. What? When I was a really? kid, go down to the town where I'm from, to this place called the Bayview Hotel. And I would sit in with these, at the time, they seemed like old guys. These, I would go into the bar, me and my friends, we'd meet down there. Wait, did you tie pillowcases? I'm still back trying to picture you climbing out the window. One floor or the second easy, floor? Easy, low, low, okay. it, it was easy to get out. Not that it's any less impressive and crazy, but... Uh, well, okay. I don't know how crazy that... I mean, there's other crazier Sneaking things. Sneaking out of your... When That's you, nothing. When you're supposed to be... Doing your homework or sleeping or sleeping right in the middle of the night. Yeah. Oh, that's a little, how old are we talking? 15, 14, 15. Okay. I don't think every kid <laughs> can claim doing that, especially a nice Catholic girl from uh, Northern California whose parents, what did they ever find out you were leaving? Yeah. One time there was an incident. So I'm in the club on a night and listening to the music. Cause I was so into the music and once in a while, they would let me play like one tune. It was just super big thrill for me to play wow. in this bar with these old guys. And I was playing Blue Skies or something. And my father walks in. Wow. I'm like, oh, my God. He walks in and I see him and I'm like, and I, I see this lady at the bar going, hey, to my father, who's not my mother. And Perhaps and was he a regular there? I don't know. Was he busted at that moment? Well, here's what happened. I think he saw me. I saw him. I finished the tune. I left. I went back into the window. You know, I got back home somehow. And nobody said a word. <laughs> My God. It was like, nope, don't say anything. I'm not going to say that I saw him there. And I'm not going to say, and he didn't, he didn't rat on me. So that happened. I could have just... To try to imagine being spanked for playing Irving Berlin at 15 <laughs> in, in the late 70s. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, there was... that's crazy. That's... Yeah, it was kind of something else. Uh, I mean, and then, you know, I would have to get rides to gigs. I was starting gig to work with the Satin Dolls. I had a band. You know, uh, I also heard that uh, from a mutual friend of ours. I don't know if I'd ever... Maybe I'd heard that you were in a band called the Satin Dolls. <laughs> yeah. But uh, our friend Michael Blanco mentioned that, and he said he, he asked me if I was going to ask you about that. So I'm glad you mentioned it. Yep. Please tell us about the Satin oh my Dolls. God. Well, thank God <laughs> my band director was awesome, Don Keller, and he encouraged us to play small grooves and improvise. We even had improv class. Well, I, let's just say that I cut the math class to go to improv class, so let's just leave it at that because that's true. So... We started a band, four, four girls, mm -hmm. and he started getting us gigs. 
We started gigging when we were 15. We had to get rides in my parents' station wagon and load it up. We loaded it up with a Leslie, if you know what a Leslie. What? Really? So an you amp. Had a, and you the, had a Hammond B3 player? Not Hammond B3. It was a Leslie amp. Which oh, right, is, right. Well, I know it's the amp that has the, has the, the, the disc that twirls and it gives you the... Yeah, it has that. And then, so we had that in the station wagon, an acoustic bass, my amp, which was kind of big, a drum set, and there was... Oh, the Fender Rhodes. So this oh stuff is God. really heavy. You guys must have all been weightlifters, too. Cause... Well, we had to get it out of there and set it up and play at all these different events. And, yeah, and, you know... Playing old swing tunes or? Yeah. Well, actually, we didn't know a lot of songs. We knew, we knew a couple, even eighth note, like Spinning Wheel was one of them. There you go, right. Oh, yeah. And um, at the time, we were listening to a lot of Earth, Wind, and Fire, but we couldn't play it. We were just too hard. Yeah. We played Satin Doll like maybe five times in the event. Who cares? Exactly. You know, and we were just like friends and we would rehearse and stuff like that. Did you have to... I mean, I'm asking this. <laughs> uh -oh. No, well, okay, an all-girl band. Yeah. Uh, and it's still okay to say girls because we are talking teenagers. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask, what was the uh, uniform that you wore? No, oh, God, Rich. Oh, boy. Well, this might no, have to be edited out. No, because I think... No uniforms. We just wore regular... You know what I'm saying? Because, look, I mean, <laughs> it's not even a sexist thing in those days or maybe in my days before that. Sometimes the band had to have a look, and I'm thinking in an awful time where it was a more sexist world that as a band filled with girls, you wanted to look a certain way. And so that wasn't an issue no, because we, you were playing cooler music. You weren't playing, uh, you know, Ohio players tunes. Right. I mean, I understand that in the 70s, everybody had a uniform, but I'm from a town where Everybody, uh, we didn't even wear shoes. Right, we're talking Santa Cruz, I forget. Yeah, we're just like, you know, it didn't matter. Like, you could just, as long as you look decent, you brushed your hair. Right. I think we were probably wearing mostly sandals almost all the time. Right, okay. It's a beach town. All right. So it's, it. yeah, we weren't, like, together in that way. We were just really there to play and rehearse. We were rehearsed in my parents' house, and they were just like, oh, my God. You know, I would, there was one jam where my friend called a jam at my parents' house, and she invited, like, 15 kids, and she didn't even show up. And my parents were like, what's going on? I go, I don't know. But, Wait, the, the, the band member didn't show up, but the yeah. family invited 15 kids to just hang out? My friend invited 15 kids to my parents' house, to jam and she didn't show up. <laughs> oh God. And so it was all these kids. Right. And I didn't know what was going on. You know, I was like, wow. But that's, you know, that was my way of probably that's a little bit of a rebellious thing. Yeah, it sounds and it sounds yeah. like a good way to, you know, feed your creative soul as well as what's all important then, your social what socially, what did that mean for you? And 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 also tell me, because we should move on to like, how did that get you to post high school and career wise um, where you were headed? Yeah. I mean, I didn't think I'd play bass for a living at all. I was thought I should be a classical pianist. So that was my major until, you know, maybe the second year of college. And I'm like, I, I this is not 
I don't want to be in a room eight hours a day with the piano and then once in a while doing a concert that just didn't seem like my personality. And, you know, because I like people, I like jamming. I like the looseness of jazz. And um, I was playing, you know, I was playing rock. I was, I always wanted to be in a garage band. You know, when they said garage band, I'm like, I was dying for that, (laughs) but I couldn't do that you know it was hard it was hard enough to do what i was doing <laughs> right and right around that time was yeah you know. so yeah i just kept so where going. are we talking college wise yeah college wise and then i just where, kept where, going where were you in college well san jose state frank tusa was my teacher he was a new yorker yeah yeah spell his last name right t-u-s-a he right, was with right. richie byrack right right so he was awesome and then they let him go and i thought well, I'm not coming back here. So I ended up going to Cal State Northridge. Mm-hmm. Oh, big, big jazz school. Big jazz school. But I didn't want to play in the big band because I was gigging. I, would, I was putting myself through school. So I really didn't have time. Right. You know, there was a big commitment with mm-hmm. all their, they had a heavy schedule. They were like award winning. And I was like, I need to make a living. So I put myself through school, you know, it was a little crazy. I, I don't recommend doing what I did to kids. Like if I'm counseling kids right. today or right. advising them. Thinking you can pay your tuition. By oh playing my God. Well, well, the tuition the- was a lot less than, but right. I needed money for everything. I mean, I, I didn't have that. So right. I had some scholarships, um, and I just kept going, and I had great teachers there, and I was working all the time. And mm-hmm. I guess one thing I wanted to discuss before we, before we played these clips and talked a little bit about them was uh, for any listeners who may or may not be interested in, in uh, you know, treading the, the uh, uh, wire between the Broadway world and the jazz world, only because... Uh, in so many ways, or in at least a few key ways, they're polar opposites. And mm-hmm. and it applies to a lot of musicians who are making a living on Broadway. We all know that in, in many cases, they either fall into the category of people who spent their lives uh, studying their instrument to play classical music, and that's where their passion was, or to be a commercial musician, if, if that's the broadest general term for someone who plays anything other than classical music, although, yeah, jazz or pop or whatever. Um, And now we know that there's a generation of musicians whose goal it is to play on Broadway for many good reasons, practical reasons, and because Broadway's branched out so much, so it's a way to play so many different styles. But for me... And I'd just rather hear you comment on what the challenges are, if you see them that way, about trying to stay, uh, keep that one foot in the jazz world and the other foot in the Broadway world, because the disciplines are, in a lot of ways, very different. Yeah, no, that's, it it is complicated because uh, the business has changed drastically in, in the last, well, it's always been changing, but it's really changed. I've been in New York 25 years, and uh, you could back then make a living, a decent living playing just jazz gigs. Now, there's no way. I I don't see how, I mean, especially right now. I mean, it's a pandemic. 
So I've always been interested in lots of different kinds of music. So I personally love the electric basses, play, you know, all of them. And, and then, um, I, I just think it's important to, you know, I used to play in a blues band with called Sweet Potato. And we used to do these crazy gigs in the tri-state area. Well, we would go in a van around four states in the late 90s. And I had to learn all these bass lines and transcribe all this stuff from Jimi Hendrix to Stevie Ray Vaughan. And that was the greatest experience. And learning how to, um, you know, play the blues the right way, you know, and be out on the road and deal with all that the styles because i didn't grow up on that stuff that was right. new to me right like a lot of music even still sometimes like certain beatles songs or rock songs they're still i'm still learning stuff because i didn't you were denied that in a way when yeah you for kid. years yeah. like it was just like crazy so was this band the first major thing you were doing in new york city when you were here no i was with diva briefly oh right um and uh Diva being, the for those fem- who don't know. Yeah, 17-piece, all-female big band right. based in New York City. Uh, I, after about two weeks of being, being in New York, they hired me. And um, that was interesting. The word was out. I you guess were in the, town. I mean, I was not a fan of playing with all-female groups Yeah, all. that's another topic that we could, or, or maybe it's, it is or isn't worth discussing. It's just might not be that complicated. It's just a matter of taste and... And uh, even though there's so many great players in Diva, it's maybe it wasn't... Well, I shouldn't speak for you. Go go ahead. There was great players. Um, I think um, I had also played with the all-female big band in Los Angeles. So I kind of, you know... and I That's reason right there. You know, you've done it. I've done it. I need to work. Um, they are very good. And I met some people I am still friends with today and we still work together. And that was awesome. I just, uh, uh, as far as the, um, novelty thing and separation, I, I always like playing with a lot of different co- people, just co- different kinds of people, right. different age groups, different races. I think it's important. Um, I different, you know, just different backgrounds, I've always been interested in many other kinds of music. Right. And and that's been really important to me. So, like, when I would just get hired because, A, I'm a female into a big band, I, it wasn't that um, exciting for me. You know, I was like, huh. Yeah. I, I mean, am I being hired for... Yeah, anything that's, it is a novelty. I think uh, anybody in that band would be the first to admit it. That doesn't take away from the quality of the music, but if that's what it's founded on, then automatically there are certain implications and certain, uh, a dynamic in the band maybe. Well, and that's also, for sure. And also how it's presented. Yeah, I mean, it was all that. And it, it you know, I, I did the first album with them and then we parted ways and... um you know, at the time, 25 years ago, that might have been some of the only work a lot of women can get, but now it's really, it's different now. Right. This thing I did with all these young women, I mean, they are fierce, you know, and they have a lot of support, you know, and I, I really love that. And they work really, really hard. You can't just be like an okay player. You have to be fierce. Yeah. 
And I feel like when I was, I shouldn't maybe say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. When I was in LA, you didn't need to be fierce to be in that band. Right. You just didn't. You could just get away with a lot just by, because they needed people. There wasn't that many women players. And that was upsetting to me. Yeah. And I, I you get know? it. I, maybe it had its place, but you're evolving as a player, you know, in those days and you're moving ahead and it kind of makes sense that it's an experience that you probably don't regret at all, but you quickly, it was time to move on maybe because. Yeah, it was time to move on. And, and I didn't want to just do that. You know, I, I wanted, right. I wish, you know, I could have done stuff, the guys in the bands the when I was in college, a lot of the guys went on the road with like Maynard and yeah. the ghost bands. And I wanted to go so bad. There was no way I would ever be hired for any of that stuff. Hmm. No way. Yeah. Because you had to share on a bus. A, um, those guys had to sleep this really strange way. I heard about it. <laughs> like yeah. either foot to foot or something like that on these platforms in the bus. So, you know, there's no way for me to do that. I did play on these cruise ships early while I was in college mm -hmm. to make money on the weekends. I did the weekend singles cruises. Talk about crazy. Oh, my God. Nuts. And the good thing about that was we had to put a show together for, like, three different entertainers over the weekend. We had to rehearse. The minute we got there, people would just throw charts at us, and we had to get these shows together play them through the weekend, come back on Monday, I go right to school, right Man. into like drop the needle class or whatever, the yeah. ear training class for some like Mozart quartets. It was just hell. You're all over the place. That, that's major education. It was nuts. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I got a lot of good experience from that. And um, I want to give props to all... <laughs> To my band directors who would just throw up charts in front of us all the time. E even the classical right. ones, just like, let's sight read this. And of course mm -hmm. that, that helped you like when you realized Broadway was an option, not, not only an option, but you know, to be a performing musician regularly in New York city, you were, you were came to the town the same time. A lot of people did where the business was changing and, and, uh, Broadway was one of the best games in town and it always, it, and previously had not necessarily been the best game in town for steady music work. Right. So. Yep. In the nineties, I came to New York and I was blown away when I went down to audit Tommy, which was my first Broadway show. Right. That's amazing. That that was your first show. <laughs> it was so amazing. I mean, I was like, Oh my God. This level is a whole different level than I've ever heard. And L.A. had some amazing musicians. Mm -hmm. But this became a thing. And I didn't come to New York to play the Broadway at all. That was not on my radar. I came here, I think, to play jazz and classical. But the classical thing just was like, nope. Right. I did start playing a lot of jazz gigs. And I started with Diva right away. But then I started subbing right away like within a few months of being here on Broadway. Well, if Tommy's your first show yeah. to sub on, mm -hmm. and uh, that would give you incredible uh, street cred, Broadway cred, for that to be your first show just because of the, the pressure. But we, it, Well, we could go on, but I think maybe we should sort of morph this into 
the little project, which uh, it's already abundantly clear to whoever's listening to this that this is uh, the maiden voyage for it. So yeah, uh, you're the first guinea pig, and <laughs> and I already know it was fun to an extent because I've heard these things. So uh, basically, I'll just say it again if it hasn't been said before that there are uh, five or more than five there, but I think I'm basically using five different clips of me playing drums in basically the jazz vein, although it kind of vaguely covers uh, a little more than just something very traditional. Anyway, they were recorded just me playing with no purpose other than to test out my new recording equipment and to just have fun. So there's no real uh necessarily like a musical arc to them although some of them wound up having it but anyway they're just very random well, the and, cutest titles well yeah well i'll mention the titles in a second super That's, cute yeah there's there's a silly reason for them but basically uh you recorded uh your bass over these tracks with pretty much no rules and just to have fun. But the, but what's unique about this is that we're not playing simultaneously. And it's something that's already set. And you had a brief amount of time to play something over them. And we've selected three cuts. And the first one we're going to play, which I've entitled Ron Ely. Uh, <laughs> I, being a, of a certain generation, I guess I was thinking television in this particular cut. I'm playing mostly mallets, and Ron Ely was TV's Tarzan in the 70s. Oh, I know that guy. You know, this, this super waspy, you know, uber white guy, which I guess... Tar I liked his outfit. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, basically, I guess it was a uh, loincloth, right? But he was so... No, like, he was great. All-American... Anyway, so I guess I just thought Tarzan because of the mallets, and that was the excuse for that title. And uh, let's just take one at a time. So uh, is there anything we should know now before? This is, uh, I think I'm going to play the whole cut. So it was, the whole drum cut was a minute and 40 seconds. Okay. Uh, is there anything you want to say before we listen to it? Uh, I did this by myself in the in my cabin in the forest and i'm not a recording engineer <laughs> i mean just well, like <laughs> i think it's fun and, and and there are a couple of things i definitely want to mention after we listen to it so so let's check it out now Thank you. 
I'll admit first that the more, here's the sign of something good, is that the more I hear it, the more I'm loving it. So I've, this is the, I've heard it a few times before I've listened, and uh, I'd rather, having said that, I want to hear what you have to say now that you've just listened to it again. How, well, when did you record this in the last couple of days or? This one, I think two weeks ago, at least. Oh, right. This Maybe one. three weeks ago. I don't really remember. I'll tell you that I, I hear a little, I, I mentioned to you before, a little Charlie Hayden vibe, which. Thank you. I love Charlie Hayden. Love, love. There was something very sort of, well, here's a good word, rural. Like you were saying, you were out in the woods. Out in the woods. And. And I'm by myself in a room. It's super quiet. I mean, it's dark. Um, you know, th- there is an energy in the Berkshires here, a very intense creative thing that's always happened for me. So this kind of just tumbled out, which I've noticed that has happened in other, when I've composed things for my CDs, um, something might just tumble out really fast. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, what? And that doesn't always happen for me the, the you know I'm, i like to plan and where you are geographically affects that at times i mean yeah for me it does I, i'm very in tune with the um vibe of well in this case the forest and also th- there's a you know also i'm you know it's you i'm playing along with what you i'm trying to have a conversation with what you were doing i wasn't like thinking too hard it was more just kind of relaxed cool i don't know no i loved it i loved it uh all right i think for the second one uh let's do the one where i played all brushes on this and uh it was part of the first five little uh clips that i recorded of myself uh so i decided to name them all after the five marx brothers and the brush, the brushes one happens to be entitled Chico, or Chico. as Groucho used to have to correct people, his real name was Chico because Chico was the one who was always after the chicks. Oh, really? So that's a little trivia for anybody listening who, like the rest of us, always said Chico. But uh, anyway, so there's no other reason. This is it's just the five Marx Brothers, <laughs> and this one was all brushes. And we're going to actually uh, just play a segment of this. Uh, it's the first three minutes of a uh, of a longer clip. But uh, all right, already too much explanation. Let's uh, let's check that out.
Well, a, a, a practical question, I guess, to ask as I learn how to navigate this part of it is uh, how many times did you listen to this before you played over it? Did you, oh. did you make a conscious decision for all of them or for each of them? Like, oh, I need to listen to this many more times before I think of what I want to do? Or you, do you deliberately do it as, as soon as possible? Yeah, I mean, I listened to them a few times and kind of played along for a while and didn't record. You know, just practice. Like, you would practice with anything. Right. And then just decided to hit play and just whatever came out, came out. You know, so each time I played, it was a little bit different. It was like very different. I had no plan, Rich. Well, that's, I, hey. It's, it's not a lot of, I mean, that one was crazy sounding to me. I, yeah. I'm not sure if I, I know I was hanging around a, a, some diminished chords and stuff, but um, that was not my intention. It was more just of a feeling and like, the interplay, you know, with what I was hearing you, you do. Right. So then let's just go to the third one. And just for the hell of it, since I was in that TV theme, at least from my childhood, uh, I named this one Mannix. But there was a musical reason, because when I listened back to it, I was thinking of all, all of the, uh, the music that Lalo Schifrin had written for a couple of cool TV shows, and Mannix was one of them. And is this the right term? Interstitial? Is that the right yes, word? Music. You know, all the background music. And uh, so I listened to it and it reminded me of some things from Mannix. But uh, that doesn't mean that whoever's playing bass is going to hear that or even make that connection. So that's another thing that shouldn't be uh, uh, limiting in terms of the, uh, how the bassist plays. So I'm going to start this actually a little bit into the recording, because this was a long one, and uh, there was a really cool place I thought to start this, so let's check this out. That's kind of cool. That's crazy. I, I don't know. I don't even know <laughs> what I was thinking during that. I mean, I did go back and listen to the Mannix theme just because I wanted to remember what that was. Right. I, I, you know, I, 
Yeah. Mannix. You're you not look... as old as I am, so you weren't watching that show when it was... Well, yeah, maybe you were. Yeah, I was. I was watching it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and then I remembered the theme, and then I forgot that Lalo Schifrin wrote that theme. And then I was like, oh, yeah. And I played, you know, he was the conductor of this. Um, it was called the Debut Symphony Orchestra, and they threw you out when you were 26. So when I was 26, <laughs> right. they, they were like, bye. I was with them for three years. Wow. But it was awesome. Cause and he conducted it regularly or was yeah. he a guest? Oh, wow. He was one of the main conductors for a while. Um, we had guest conductors. We had Leonard Bernstein and John Williams. We played yeah. at Royce Hall. It was kind of fantastic. Yeah. And and so tell us what Lalo Schifrin was like because yeah. you know, anybody who knows his music. He was really great. He was kind of learning how to conduct you know, because that wasn't his thing uh -huh. when he got to us. So, you know, he was, I think he was just kind of learning. He wasn't like a seasoned conductor, and we, kinda, we knew that, but he was really nice. He was cool. He was a cool cat. Meanwhile, thank you so much. Thanks, Rich. This was Rich. so great. I'm glad we're able to do this, and, and uh, I hope our voices don't sound too muffled by the masks. I don't think so. No, I think we sound pretty good, even think, with masks on. It's right. safety first, Rich. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, on that note of safety first. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. We're uh, wearing a bright fluorescent uh, jacket like a crossing guard. <laughs> we're, we're very safe today. All right. Uh, thanks again. And, uh, and uh, see you soon. Great. She's great, right? I got to thank Marianne for being my first. And I hope sometime next year you'll be able to go see her in Girl from the North Country on Broadway. I read Bob Dylan loved it so much he was crying at the end. And please check out my next two podcasts. I interview the amazing New York bassist Lou Bruno, who I've been lucky to have done four Broadway shows with. Lou talks about the wild, auspicious reunion with his teenage jazz trio from the early 1960s, and also is working for years up until her passing with the legendary Elaine Stritch. Also, I talked to one of LA's busiest bassists, Mike Valerio, who has amazing and interesting tales of his TV and film recordings, including the last two Star Wars movies. Mike talks about his special relationship with John Williams, who personally asked him to make up his own bass line for an iconic scene in The Last Jedi. Finally, thanks to my buddy Pete Donovan, New York bassist, writer, engineer, renaissance man, for editing this all together. I told you all my friends were bassists. Intro and outro theme music is from the Tom Varner composition, Knock Knock, performed by the East Down Septet. Thanks for listening, folks. Stay well.